Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, if you're joining with us for the first time. We are currently going through the book of Revelation. And this morning, Revelation 19 is about the heavenly hallelujahs. God is re- uh, heaven is rejoicing. One of the most often thought about questions man has asked down through the ages is how is it all going to end? How's this world going to end? How is this life going to end as we know it? And historians, philosophers, psychics, mystics, prognosticators, you know, fortune tellers, they've all looked at the past, trying to find something to help people understand what the future holds. But no one has found anything solid. No one has found any key to unlock that mystery. You know, there's guys like Nostradamus who practiced the occult. And in a book that he wrote in in 1555, it contained 942, I guess you could say, prophecies or predictions that allegedly predict famous future events. And boy, a lot of people put stock in him. So it's no wonder bewildered people go to spiritists and astrologers and other occult practitioners to find out, hey, what's the future hold? What's going to happen tomorrow? Saul did. He went to a medium in 1 Samuel 28, 6, because God quit, quit, quit speaking to him. It says that when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. But you see, today we have the prophetic word of God. We have God's word. And God's word shines brightly in the dark. And it says, as the psalmist says, it's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And you know what? We can depend upon it. And again, just another mention of the conference that we're going to have next year. Uh, That's what it's all about. It's going to see why. We're going to be taught how and why we can depend upon God's word. Here in Revelation chapters 19 and 20, John has given us five key events that are going to take place before God folds up human history and before he unfolds the new heaven and the new earth. In chapter 19 and 20, Jesus is seen as the conqueror. Here in chapter 19, the the tone, the mood of Revelation changes because Babylon, the Antichrist headquarters, has been destroyed. And that marks the end of the Great Tribulation period. The mood changes from darkness to light, from the terrible misery of God's judgment to days of blessing. Chapter 19 brings the greatest event that ever happens to this earth, and that is the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom. Let's begin now with chapter 19, verse 1. And John says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. After these things, after these things means the beginning of something new. This new vision takes place after Babylon is destroyed. We saw that in chapters 17 and 18. And before Christ's second coming to set up the millennial kingdom. 
where there was once loud, miserable cries. Remember, we heard that in the last couple of chapters. There were loud, miserable cries from the people. Babylon is destroyed. The harlot has been destroyed. Again, it's because of the destruction of Babylon. Now, in chapter 19, there are shouts of rejoicing in heaven. When something as dangerous and wicked as the Antichrist kingdom is destroyed by judgment, and rightly so, God's people will rejoice with a joyful choir of alleluia. John heard something, he said, that sounded like a huge crowd of people uh, in heaven shouting alleluia, which is praise the Lord. He said salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. The voices here are probably angels, since they're encouraged to join in the praise later on in verses 5 through 8. The countless number of holy angels make up this huge heavenly choir. Heaven is happy. Heaven is rejoicing because salvation has finally come to God's people. It's to celebrate the last part of salvation history, the glorification of the saints in the kingdom of Christ. The soon coming of Jesus Christ triggers this praise as the angels look forward to that wonderful and glorious time of his kingdom. Verses 2 through 3. John goes on to say, For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged, uh, has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. So here's the reason for the praise. The harlot, the great harlot has been punished. Babylon has been punished. God brought salvation to his church that was persecuted by her and brought glory to himself at the same time showing his power. They cried hallelujah or praise the Lord again in verse 3 because the Christian's great enemy has been destroyed. Verses 4 through 5. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. Now we're not told here who the voice was that came from the throne. But most likely it's an angel. Uh, because again, he refers to God as our God. The 24 elders, they cried, Alleluia, praise the Lord. The elders are believed to be the representatives of the church. And this is the last time we will see them as elders because the figure changes now. And the church is to become the bride of Christ. The word church means called out. Here on earth, we, the church, are the called out ones. But after we leave the earth, we are going to be the bride. Look at verse 6 now. John goes on to say, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunders, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Give him glory for... Oh, let me stop there. Let me go back to verse 6. So when, when the redeemed joined in with the voices from verse 5, John says, well, they sounded like many waters. He says, and mighty thunder saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Because the evil world system has been totally wiped out. And God's kingdom now has come in its fullness. Now verses 7 through 10. 
And John goes on, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen. Notice the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. John says, and I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Here in these verses, we have the marriage of the lamb. This is going to be the most exciting experience believers will ever have. The church, we, the church, the bride, the body of believers from Pentecost, the day the church was born, to the rapture when it was taken up into glory. It is going to be presented now to Jesus as a bride for marriage. The marriage takes place in heaven. The bride is the church. That is us. And Jesus Christ, the lamb, is the bridegroom. At a wedding... Everybody usually focuses on the bride. She's the one who gets all the attention, but not here. Notice, it's the bridegroom who's honored. Verse 7 says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. The lamb's bride, the church, is all dressed up. She's dressed up, it says here, notice, in fine linen, which represents the righteous acts of the saints. This is their faithful obedience to God. And without faithful obedience to God, we're not going to be dressed up in this fine linen. It's where our words and our works, that is, what we know of the Word of God and our life work together. They match. It speaks of our faithful obedience to God. Paul said in Ephesians 5.27, we're going to be a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing holy and without blemish when we're presented. She, Paul, uh, John says in verse 7, she, that is the bride, the church, has made herself ready. In preparation for her marriage to the Lamb, his bride has made herself ready. How? Not by her own works. It wasn't anything that she did. It was by the gracious works of God. Now, Jewish weddings in this day, or I should say in that day, uh, in this time that we're talking about here, Jewish weddings were very different than weddings that we have today in the Western world. First of all, there was an engagement. That engagement was usually made by the parents while the children were still very young. This engagement, though, it was binding. It was the same as being, in, being married. And it could only be broken, this engagement could only be broken by a formal divorce. Any unfaithfulness during the engagement though they weren't officially married, if you will, was considered adultery. Now, when the public ceremony was to be formed, the groom would go to the bride's house and claim her for himself. He'd take her to his home from the wedding, for the wedding supper, and all the guests would join the happy couple, and this feast could go on as long as a week. But here's the interesting thing. The groom would go to the bride's house and claim her for himself. She never knew when he was coming. But she had to be ready. That's the picture of the church of Jesus Christ. We're his bride. He's the bride. And he's coming for us. But we don't know when. 
but we need to keep ourselves ready. You know, blemish-free, spotless from the world, the stains of the world. We need to be ready for it because we don't know when he's coming. And then when he does, he's claiming us for himself. And then he's going to take us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Today, the church is engaged to Jesus Christ. And we love him, even though we haven't seen him. But one day, he's going to come back for us. And he's going to take us, his bride, to be in heaven. Jesus said, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then at the judgment seat of Christ, her works are going to be judged. All of her spots and all of her blemishes will be removed. And when this is done, the church is going to be ready to return to earth with her bridegroom at the end of the tribulation to reign with him in glory. Now, certainly the bride is not invited to her own wedding. This invitation goes out to the guests, believers from the Old Testament time and the tribulation period. And during the eternal state, when we are finally in in that final eternity, there will be no distinctions among God's people. But in the kingdom age, the millennial kingdom, differences will still exist as the church reigns with Christ and as Israel enjoys the promised messianic blessings. Just think about it. That gathering for the Grand Supper together. Christians, all together for that one huge supper. Many times, you know, over the years, people talk about, you know, what is it going to be like? You know, what is that supper going to be like? Is he, Jesus going to serve us? Is he going to wait on us? Or, or, or how's it going to be? And, and Christians often try to guess what this feast is going to be like. You know, is it an actual dinner? Or is it, a, a, is it symbolic for some other, you know, just fantastic blessings that we're going to receive? Will we be, will we be sitting? Will there be hors d'oeuvres served first? Will, will it be a seven-course meal? Or is it going to be an all-you-can-eat buffet? What kind of food will it be? Will it be kosher? Will it just be a big pork fest? You know, you don't know. But because of man's limited mind, He's thinking about, you know, normally we think about, I wonder what we're going to eat. But that would be missing the point. Because it's not about what we're going to eat, but who we're going to eat with. That's the, that's the unimaginable thing. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus said at the Last Supper when he said, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When the whole church gathers together at that time, glorified and one with each other in the kingdom of God, Jesus is going to sit down with us and he's going to enjoy that face-to-face fellowship with those that he loves, his bride. John was so blown away by all of this. Notice he fell down at the, at the angel's feet and worshipped him there in verse 10. And he does it again in chapter 22. But worshipping angels is wrong. And, you know, and John knew this. But John was so blown away, he was so caught up in the moment, in the middle of all of this, that his emotions got the best of him. And man, down he went at the feet of the angel. But this angel was nothing more than a servant of God, just like John himself. And we don't worship servants of any kind. Verse 10, notice the angel said, we worship God only. The angel's last word to John is a reminder that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
That means the purpose of all prophecy and of all I've shown you is to tell about Jesus. That is what we're all to do, is to tell about Jesus. The main subject of Old Testament prophecy and New Testament preaching is the Lord Jesus Christ. And until his kingdom is established, all who proclaim the gospel must be faithful to their testimony about Jesus Christ, the saving gospel message, which was his message. And the wonderful truth that God is going to judge the wicked and bring believers into his kingdom, man, that should be a reason for all believers to rejoice. And Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 8, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our reason for rejoicing because our enemies will finally be avenged by God. Because believers are defined as those who have loved his appearing. They're eagerly waiting for his return from heaven. We are waiting for his appearance. Verse 11. Now, John says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. This, verse 11, speaks of the second coming of Christ. And here comes Jesus, it says in verse 11, to the earth with his church to deal with his enemies by force and to force upon man a time of peace. The Lord Jesus is coming to earth again. But this time, Jesus won't be coming with his glory hidden like when he was born in the manger in the clothing of humanity. You know, there in the manger, he is wrapped up in swaddling clothes. And he hid his glory. But he's going to be coming here as we're reading in splendor and in power like a majestic warrior with all of his war flags flying high. Notice what John says here. He is faithful. He is the faithful and true. He is the faithful and true. For centuries, all the world has heard is God's enemies lying and twisting the truth about Jesus Christ. We see this world today twisting and perverting and lying about Jesus Christ and His Word. And finally it says here, John says, the truth has come. Truth is God's very nature. The Bible says He's not a man that He can lie. He doesn't lie. He can't lie because it's, it's not His nature. He can't... He can't be anything but true. Now, here, Jesus in this picture, he, he's not coming to try to persuade the world that he's in king, that he's king. He's been doing that for over 2,000 years. And like I said, he's not going to try to persuade the world that he's king here and that he's Lord. It is now clear to everyone that can see that he is. And Jesus in his righteousness judges and makes war in exodus 15 3 we read the lord is a man of war in righteousness jesus judges and makes war he's been judging since the breaking of the seals earlier in revelation and the blowing of the trumpets and the pouring pouring out of the bold judgments but now he's making war our lord jesus christ for centuries has been so patient with mankind 
He's put up with, with mockery. He's put up with blasphemous insults. He's put up with men's disrespect. And for centuries, he's thought about what took place at Calvary and how Calvary showed all human hatred. Calvary showed man at his worst. But Calvary showed God at his best. For centuries, Jesus thought about what happened at Calvary. And through the centuries, Jesus has made an offering of peace through that blood on the cross. But now he's going to make war over that blood. He's going to make war with those who did not take advantage. Who did not receive that bloodshed on Calvary. And here now, man has, man's sin has reached its lowest point. And it has to be punished. And it has to be punished by force. But there's not going to be much of a fight. Because you see, when the battle starts... It'll be all over in a flash. Let's look at verse 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. John saw these same eyes of fire back in chapter 1. Eyes that see everything. Eyes that can look into the, even the deepest places of man's heart. There's nothing hidden from the Lord. Nobody can hide what's going on in their heart. We might be able to hide it from each other, but God sees right through it. He knows exactly what's going in a man's heart. His eyes showed tenderness and joy when little children gathered around him. His eyes showed compassion when he saw people who were distressed and discouraged and wandering around like lost sheep. His eyes wept over Jerusalem who wouldn't repent. And he wept over the suffering and the, uh, the sorrow and the death of a sinful world that had no hope. But here, notice, John doesn't see eyes of compassion. He sees eyes flashing with fiery judgment. And John says, on his head were many crowns, which indicates he's going to be the only ruler on the earth. And his rule is going to be a dictatorship. John says he will rule with a rod of iron. If you don't love Jesus Christ this morning, and if he's not your savior... And you live to enter this period of his return to the earth. It's going to be very, a very hard time for you. Because he's going to rule with a rod of iron. You're not going to be able to do what you want. You're not going to be able to get away with anything. Nobody will be able to do anything without his permission. Because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Verse 12 says that he has the name that no one knows. This might be the same as the new name that was mentioned in chapter 3, verse 12. Can you imagine all the new things that we're going to learn and see about our Lord Jesus when we get to heaven? Unimaginable. Verse 13. It says, He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and His name is called the Word of God. John says He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now, the blood here doesn't speak of the blood that He shed on the cross. This blood here is a picture of judgment, not redemption. The blood is the blood of his slaughtered enemies. His name is called the Word of God. This unmistakably identifies him as the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate Son of God, the God in the flesh. He is called the Word of God because he's the revelation of God. Jesus Christ is everything God is. 
Jesus Christ is the full expression of the mind, will, purpose, and character of God. Hebrews 1.3 says Jesus is the brightness of His glory. Speaking of God, Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of His person. The words express image in Hebrews 1.3 carries the idea of the exact imprint. Jesus is the exact imprint of God. Our English word character comes from the Greek word translated image. So literally, Jesus Christ is the exact representation of the very substance of God. Paul said in Colossians 2.9, For in Him, that is in Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Only Jesus could honestly say, He that has seen Me has seen the Father. You see, when you see Jesus, you see the glory of God. You see all that God is. The name, the Word of God, it's one of the common names of our Lord Jesus in Scripture. You know, many times we expose what's in our minds and in our hearts by the words that we speak. We give ourselves away or what's in our heart and our minds by the words that we say, the things that we say to other people. The Father Himself reveals Himself to us through His Son. The incarnate Word. The Word of God in the flesh. If you've heard the Son, you've heard the Father. Jesus is the voice of God. And on that first Christmas morning when Jesus was born in that manger and He let out that first cry, the voice of God was heard by man for the first time. A word is made up of letters. And Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. He's the divine alphabet of God's revelation to the world, to us. Look at verse 14. John says, And in the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on, a white, uh, followed him on white horses. When Jesus returns, he's coming with the armies of heaven, and we're going to be part of that army. He's coming back with the bride of the Lamb. That's us. Who's wearing, notice, for 7 and 8 told us, fine linen, clean and bright. So will the tribulation believers, who are also pictured in heaven wearing white robes. We saw that in chapter 7. The Old Testament saints, who are resurrected at the end of the tribulation. And last, the holy angels. We're, we're all going to come with, with Christ. This angelic army came with Jesus. Verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. John says out of his mouth, Christ's mouth, goes a sharp sword. John saw this sword first in chapter 1, verse 16, where it was used to defend the church from the attacks of Satan and his armies. But here, it's the sword of judgment. And it's going to bring death to God's enemies. The sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, it symbolizes the deadly power of Christ's words. Now, as Savior, He spoke words of comfort and peace. But here, as judge, He speaks words of death. And you know what? He doesn't need weapons. He doesn't need a physical sword or weapon of any kind to take care of business. All he needs is the sword of the word to kill the wicked. Hebrews 4.12 tells us the word of God is living and powerful. 
and it fulfills his purpose on earth. Jehovah himself says, I am ready to do what I said I would do, perform my word, Jeremiah 1.12. Just as the word was the father's instrument in creation, remember when he spoke, it came into existence. He said, Sun, light be, and it was light. It's also his instrument for judgment and the ending of all things. The rod of iron is a symbol of his justice as he rules over the earth. John says there he treads the he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. This symbol of God's wrath comes from the practice of stomping on grapes when ma- when making wine, and the splattering of the grape juice symbolizes the pouring out of the blood the pouring out of the blood of Christ's enemies. The imagery of a winepress also stands for the judgment for judgment in the Old Testament. Verse sixteen. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The name King of Kings and Lord of Lords means the one who is supreme over all earthly rulers. It speaks of his sovereign triumph over all of his enemies and his complete rule in his coming kingdom that's soon to be established. Christ's most important name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because this is his victorious name. And the title speaks of Jesus' sovereignty because all kings and all lords must submit to him. It doesn't matter who was on the throne of the Roman Empire. Jesus Christ was king and lord. Verses 17 through 18. Now we look at the battle of Armageddon. John says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Men who live in the flesh are going to die in the flesh. This here, verses 7 through 18, this is an invitation at the end of the battle of Armageddon to all the flesh-eating birds to come and to have a banquet on the earth of all that will be killed. Wicked flesh to eat. John said the, king, the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people. You see, rebelling against God, which these did, is not a smart thing to do when he's going to judge you one day. These two verses, 17 and 18, show us how terrible man's heart really is because they gather together to fight against God. Verse 19. <coughs> John says, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse against his army. The next thing John sees in his vision is the beast or the Antichrist and the kings of the earth, their armies. They're gathered together for the sole purpose of making war against Jesus Christ, the one who sat on the horse, and to fight against his army. This is amazing. Because this amazing and what seems like an invincible army of the Antichrist, and with all of its firepower, is waiting for Jesus to come. Verse 20. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who, were worship, those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Notice, before even one 
blow is thrown. The battle is over. Before one shot is fired, it's over in an instant. We see the Antichrist was captured and the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence that were used to deceive those in order to receive the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, it was all over in a minute. These two demon-powered leaders, the Antichrist and the false prophet, these two demon-powered leaders of the world, they're defeated. And John says they're thrown alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. This is the final hell. The final destination of Satan, his angels, and all those who never received Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, understand, hell was never made for man. And I was reading a message by Adrian Rogers, Pastor Adrian Rogers, on hell. And he said, if, if, if you go to hell, if any man goes to hell, you're an intruder. Because it wasn't made for man. And you can never blame God for going there. Because it was never meant for man. man. God made a way of escape. God made a way so that you would never end up in hell. But you see, if you choose to reject God's provision, you're choosing to go to hell. No man will ever be able to say, well, you know, or, or even to say, you know, you've heard people, well, I can't believe God would send anybody to hell. He doesn't. You, choose, you have to work really hard to go there because he's made a way through his son upon the cross and through the word of God and through prayer and the Holy Spirit. We have every, we have to choose to not go there. But if we don't choose Christ, then we've chosen to go there. So we can never be angry at God. We're intruding on something that was never meant for us to be. Hell has always existed, but this here is its final form. It's not like Hades. Today, when an unbeliever dies, his spirit goes down to a place uh, called Hades, which means the unseen world or the realm of the dead. When believers die, they go immediately into the presence of the Lord. Yes, and one day, one day, all who are in Hades they are going to be thrown into the lake of fire to join Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all of those people who chose to go there. The lake of fire is not a temporary holding place. It is a permanent place of imprisonment and punishment. And once a person goes there, no one, no one will ever, ever come out. Verse 21 as we close. And the rest were killed with a sword which, protect, or which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Think about this for a moment. All the armies of the world we read here, probably dressed in their armor, with all of the world's most sophisticated weapons, and the brilliant generals will all be marching to Megiddo for the Battle of Armageddon to take on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Everywhere you look, in any direction, all you would see is military personnel and their weapons, whatever those might be at this time. Then the order is given to attack Jesus Christ. And the moment the order to attack Jesus Christ is given, the battle is over. Because God would just, Jesus would just speak it. John Phillips said, according, uh, in his commentary on this verse, he said, there will be no war at all. 
in the sense that we think of war. There will be just a word spoken from him who sit, sits on the horse. Can you imagine? Remember, Jesus spoke a word to a fig tree and it withered away. Remember, he spoke a word to the howling winds and, and, and the big waves. And the storm clouds vanished and the waves fell still. Remember, he spoke one time to a legion of demons that, felt, that filled a poor man's soul and instantly those demons fled. Here, he speaks a word and the war is over. The blasphemous, loud-mouthed beast is struck right where he stands. The false prophet, who is the miracle-working liar who deceived all of the people to take the mark of the beast, here he's uh, now in the pit and he's silent and he's still. Both of them, or I should say he was from the pit, is silent and still. Both of them, the Antichrist and the false prophet, they're bundled up, they're thrown into the everlasting flames. Another word. And the panic-stricken armies that gathered together at Armageddon, for Armageddon, they, 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 they reel and they stagger and they fall down dead. All the field marshals, the generals, the admirals, commanders, soldiers, sailors, the rank and file, everybody was there. They all fall. And then the vultures, they descend upon them and they cover the land. That's how the battle of Armageddon ends. What a hopeless picture. What a sorrowful end for the arrogant and powerful Christ-rejecting people who set themselves against God. And you see that today. Arrogant, powerful people who think they're so wise and so smart that they can blaspheme God, mock God, twist and pervert His Word and think, of, and think that that's all there is to it. God has marked them and one day, as we read here, this is what's going to happen to them. You have to ask yourself today, am I for Him or against Him? Because there's no, there's no neutral ground. There's no stand that you can take that says, well, you know, I, I, I believe you know, in Christ, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really you know, sold out, committed. There's no place where you can stand to be safe. By not choosing Christ, you've chosen to be against him. It's, clean. it's, it's that simple. Jesus left no ground where you could be safe. He said, you're for me or you're against me. You have to ask yourself, where do I stand this morning? Father, we come before you and we thank you so much for your powerful word, God. Father, we thank you for the prophetical picture that you've given us here, God. And I pray, Lord, that none of us will be in this picture, God. That, Father, we'll be in heaven. That we'll be with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that we'll be celebrating with our Lord for all eternity, God. Where are you this morning? Have you made a decision for Christ? I don't mean a decision to go to church <coughs> or to turn over a new leaf or to do more for the church. 
but have you made Jesus Christ King of kings and Lord of lords of your life? Is he your Lord and Savior? Have you come to him for, for saving salvation? That your sins might be forgiven. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And if God has spoken to your heart, and you know that you need Jesus, that you want to receive him and you want to make him your Lord and Savior, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat, you make your way down the aisles toward the steps up front, and I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith. Mm -hmm.